Today is our sixth study on the book of Acts, and the next Sunday we will conclude our current series. Since our Easter Sunday, we have been studying the impact of a risen Christ in the lives of his disciples, and truly the resurrection of Christ transformed their lives. And so far we saw the first preaching from Peter, first church in Jerusalem, first persecution from Sanhedrin, and the first church discipline last week. Today, we will meet first martyr. When you hear the word martyr, what image or thought comes to your mind? When it comes to martyr, we usually think of someone who is so holy, so spiritual, so sacrificial to God that we feel far removed from that person. But the word martyr originated from the Greek word Martyr, martyr, which means witness, which means witness. This word actually came to us from Jesus' uh, command in Acts 1 8 when Jesus said, When Holy Spirit comes to you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and the rest of the world. So, most essential. Thing about being a martyr is not about losing life or even dying. The most essential thing about being a martyr is living out your faith for Christ and bearing testimony or witness for Christ. In that sense, we are all called to be martyr, witnesses, or martyrs. One of my favorite uh, martyr stories came from farewell sermon of a pastor, Young Chai the retired senior pastor of Seoul Baptist Church in Houston, who started the uh, house church movement. In mid-1990s, one of his uh, church members uh, visited their son, who was working for Peace Corp in China. And the small Chinese village welcomed the parents and threw a banquet. In that banquet, they met and were surprised by a Chinese school custodian who was uh, very fluent in English. So these American parents asked, where did you learn to speak English like that? And they learned that he actually studied nuclear physics in the United States of America and received a PhD. And while studying in U.S., someone shared the gospel and this Chinese grad student received Jesus into his heart and became a follower of Christ. When he returned to China, Chinese government invited him to join the Communist Party and work at the prestigious government research center, which was his earlier life plan. But since CCP, Chinese Communist Party, reject God or any religion, he refused to join the party. In retaliation, Communist Party or Central Government of China sent him to be a school custodian in a small countryside village. When Pastor Chai heard the story, he called that Chinese brother a living martyr. Living martyr. Although he didn't die physically, he's been experiencing death of his lifetime dream and prestige every day. Every day, he's a bearing sacrifice for Christ's honor. So whenever we bear witness for Christ, we become martyrs. And today, in the story of Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, I want to share with everyone three essential, three essential steps of being an effective witness. Effective witness. It all starts with a P. It's a presence, proclamation, and persuasion. Okay? Present, proclamation, and persuasion. So speaking about presence, let me introduce Stephen first in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 to 10. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed the great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue were free men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen first appeared in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, as one of the seven deacons 
who were selected to take care of a food distribution to a Hellenist Jewish widows. At that time, there are two kinds of Jews. Jews born and raised in Palestine and Jews who are born and raised outside of Palestine. Stephen was a Hellenist Jew. The fact that his name was a Roman confirms that he was born and raised somewhere outside of Palestine. His name Stephen, or Stephanos in Greek, Stephanos, means crown or garland. Uh, garland that, uh, which was given uh, to uh, winners of uh, Olympic Games back then. It was a fitting name to him because Stephen eventually became the ultimate winner in life as a shining witness of Jesus. So scholars think and believe that Stephen came to Jerusalem for Passover just like any you know, Hellenistic Jewish pilgrim. And then he stayed on till the day of Pentecost and on the day of Pentecost he heard the first sermon or preaching of Peter and he was convicted of the gospel message that Jesus is a Messiah. On that he repented and received Jesus into heart and was baptized and began to serve the church. And three times in the book of Acts when Luke described Stephen, he always has a phrase that right after his name, man full of Holy Spirit or man full of grace. Man full of something of God. Actually, he was the first of the seven deacons that uh, they selected. And the order of our parents is very important in ancient you know, culture. That means the order, you know, order of our parents is order of importance. So Orthodox Church tradition calls Stephen archdeacon, archdeacon, or head deacon. By the way, the fact that the first martyr was not an apostle, but a deacon, was a, is a very uh, unique and uh, you know, common characteristic of Luke's theology. You know, Luke wants to portray Christianity, uh, a Christian movement, not as a movement of uh, superstars or super believers like uh, apostles, but he wants to tell the world that Christian movement is a movement ordinary people, like the two disciples on the road to the, uh, Emmaus, and today, in the case of Stephen. Uh, here, I like to quote, I like to read uh, uh, what Willie Jennings said about this passage. It is story all the way down. There is a no life without story. We enter story from the time we are born and never exist story even in death. Stephen has been brought to this moment in his life because of a new story. The new story has a Jesus as center, and from the center, a radical reordering of Stephen's life began. And now that radical reordering has taken hold of him. So Stephen today went to synagogue of a free man. And that's how synagogue of a Hellenist or Hellenized Jews was called then. And there he had an argument with a, a many Jews from the different parts of the Roman Empire. And the one particular you know, province name that we need to underline in chapter 6 is that uh, province of Cilicia. Why? In Cilicia, Cilicia is where Saul is from. Saul is from Tarsus. And Tarsus was a leading city in Cilicia and actually second or almost the same you know, uh, educational city, just like uh, Athens. And as you will see later, that Paul actually met Stephen and uh, he argued with him vehemently. We'll come back to that on the point at the end. Now, would you like to go to church where you have a heated argument every time you visit? You know, this shows that Stephen went to this synagogue of a freedman intentionally to witness about the gospel of Jesus. You know, he didn't have to go there. Or even if he, you know, he could have worshipped Jesus anywhere, you know. But, and also, if he didn't, he, he could be silent. But he went there and intentionally, and he was 
engaged. So first thing about presence is intentionally meeting someone. So first step being an effective witness or martyr was to be to have a presence of a non-believers in our life. Now, how intentional are we in meeting others for the gospel? You know, one good thing that I heard about this pandemic uh, is that the neighbors are talking to each other more than before. Now that we are all staying in the house and running to each other, actually, I walk more than uh, ever. Uh, every day I walk almost uh, 10,000 steps. Yes, it doesn't show, but I walk, you know, 10,000 steps. And, uh, you know, we, everyone, I mean, almost, you know, uh, 9 out of 10 people wave at each other. So that's actually good news. People sort of recognize. I began to notice that several neighbors, you know, every day. Now, neighbor literally means someone nigh or someone near us. So how intentional are we with the neighbors or those near us physically or relationally, even socially in some way? Do you guys remember uh, 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 Jason and Joanna so, the couple from Michigan? I remember the story of uh, Jason's father's, uh, father's uh, and how he came to uh, believe in Jesus. Actually, at the wedding of Jay, the Jay's father told me how he came to know Christ. I actually I didn't ask him. He volunteered and he gave me a full testimony for about you know, 30 minutes, and it was, you know, I just want to share the gist of it. So he, in Michigan, Jay's father had a very uh, kind neighbor in front of his house. And many times in fall season, he, his neighbor cleared the fall, uh, fallen leaves, not only his own backyard, but also Jay's father's house, the front yard too. And, uh, by the way, I know the pain of clearing the fallen leaves. I used to have a huge oak tree in our backyard, and I dreaded every fall. Because the, the amount of leaf, it, it breaks my back, and I even offered the $5 per back to my children, and only one of them did it. So when, when I finally removed the tree for foundational concern, I was so relieved. So Jay's father at the time was so busy as a, news, a newspaper reporter slash editor that he didn't have time to you know, clear and then his wife complained and then you know, he, at the last minute he cleared. But uh, this neighbor, every fall, he was helping out. And Jay's father was so grateful that he wanted you know, to take him out and treat him. And every time he wants to you know, treat him, the neighbor said, if you are grateful, Come and come to my church and worship, join our worship with me. That's all you, you know, that's, that, that's how you will thank me. And finally, one day, Jay's father went to church with his neighbor and God opened his heart and uh, he began to hear the gospel. Very soon he received Christ. Now he is serving his church. According to Jay's father's word, you know, every single day of the week, his, you know, Jay's father is serving the church. Now, let's continue with our story. So Stephen went to this place intentionally and then, you know, began to speak the gospel. And verse 11, And they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speaking blasphemous, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced the false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of custom Moses handed down to us. The defeated Hellenists now, they launched a smear campaign against Stephen. And they basically said, Stephen said this, that Stephen is trying to undermine the tradition of the Moses, as well as undermining our temple. He's distorting 
temple, and he's uh, he's actually he's actually uh, damaging our reputation uh, uh, of uh, having a God's holy temple, and also he is revising. He's uh, reinterpreting law of Moses as if it means nothing. So, as a result, Stephen was taken to Sanhedrin. So, charge that uh, they brought to Stephen was so-called the idea of a religious you know, innovation. And uh, back then, people were not kind about kind. They didn't look at the uh, religious innovation kindly because the main thought of religion is the older is the better. You don't change. You just follow. Now, verse 15, all who are sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like face of an angel. So this set up the stage of Stephen's witnessing. So question Stephen was asked is that, are you, are you really you know, uh, uh, re changing our Jewish you know, tradition and faith and the pride? Or are you being uh, faithful to what we believe? Now, on that note, I want to say something that is uh, very uh, relevant to us. You know, last Thursday, uh, my uh, one uh, 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 John discipleship class was canceled at the last minute, and uh, I had uh, all of a sudden time on my hand, and uh, I was uh, there was a uh, one thing that I really wanted to check it out. That was the uh, uh, National Geography. They uh, brought a, a special uh, a historic documentary. Uh, what is it called? A uh, grant. It's really great. I recommend it highly. Actually, that one is based on the uh, 2070 biography of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, 18th, 18th President of the United States, written by uh, American historian and biographer Ron Chernow. Chernow, Chernow. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Ron, Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow. He, was a, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historical writer, and the, his book on you know, Hamilton became uh, the famous Broadway product, uh, production. And uh, every book he wrote became a bestseller. But now, the reason Chernoff wrote about, uh, 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 wrote about the grant is that people misunderstood Ulysses Grant and they totally portrayed him very negatively. And many times when people rank the presidents of the United States, he comes usually on the bottom. And he wants to correct that. And uh, actually, he said as a general, he was, a most, he was a brilliant because, uh, you know, unlike many people thought that, uh, you know, North has an overwhelming number and materials to defeat the South, actually six Generals before Grant couldn't do that, couldn't defeat Robert E. Lee. It was a Grant. He's a superb you know, military tactic that really defeated the Confederate Army. And also, after he became a president, he started the so-called Reconstruction Project, which was ahead of time and very revolutionary and had a succeeding president followed the Reconstruction Project, America, we could have enjoyed more racially harmonious society than, than, than before, now. But problem is that uh, people misunderstood Grant. And actually, so I, I watched that the uh, uh, that uh, that documentary, and I was I, I was a history major. I, I was I, I actually enjoy learning American history, and I didn't know about this part. I said, "Wow, what's wrong with my understanding of history? Where, where, how come I missed this important piece in American history?" So I began to you know research and read more, and then uh, and then I asked my wife Jamie. She's uh, my uh, litmus test for almost every subject. Okay, so. I asked Jamie, Jamie, what do you know about uh, uh, President or you know, General Ulysses Grant? And Jamie said, are you talking about useless Grant? And I said, wow, that's how you know him? 
useless grant, not a Ulysses grant, but useless grant. And then I researched and I know where that, that phrase came. So, do you know what happened after the Confederate, they began to lose the war? They began, they also started to change the history. And there is a revision of history that still deceives many Americans, especially in the South. And that is called the myth of lost cause. And uh, there is a book uh, written, that, that title came from a book written by Edward Pollard, A Lost Cause. Do we have that picture, Jane? Anyway, A Lost Cause is that the, uh, by Edward, uh, Edward Pollard, we don't have that picture? Oh, okay. I thought I sent it. Anyway. What happened is that this is an American you know, pseudo-historical revisionist ideology that uh, the Southern historians and intellectuals, they want to change the, the meaning of a, you know, American Civil War. They want to say American Civil War, during American Civil War, the cause of a Confederacy was a just and heroic one. What is a just? They were fighting for rights of, yes, thank you, rights of state, you know, against the aggression, northerners' aggression. And also it's a heroic because all the famous generals and the figures of a confederate, they fought for the, the southern way of a life in spirit of a southern gentleman or chivalry. And the whole time, they were minimizing and denying the central role of a slavery for the war. And that this, now, yeah, we can go back. Now, this myth of a lost cause, it picked up intensity, especially during an early 1900. 1910s and 20, when the many veterans of uh, Confederate soldiers, uh, veteran Confederate soldiers were dying, they really kind of uh, uh, made it, this is uh, their uh, interpretation of uh, American Civil War. And they, this is when they began to publish all the books in the similar line, similar story. And also this is when they are building the monuments after the well-known Confederate figures. And they basically project this idea that the, uh, the, that the future generation of a Southern white should know that the South's true reason for fighting war was to preserve the, the lifestyle or values of a South against the North or a Confederate. And actually that value is actually the value of a white supremacist. And white supremacy is a characteristic of the lost cause narrative. And I didn't know. You know, I didn't know about this important revision that happened in, 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 our, in our country. Now, today Stephen was charged pseudo-Judaism and had to answer the charge. So now let me go to the second step. The second step of being effective witness is a proclamation. Upon the Sanhedrin's official charge, Stephen gave a correct message, convincing reply to, to turn the table around. Now, I'm not going to read the entire sermon of Stephen because it takes more than eight minutes and I know how excited you feel about the long sermon. So I encourage you to read after, the, after, the, uh, after today's worship. And this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, as chapter 7 is the longest chapter of the book. And uh, actually, Stephen's sermon is the second longest sermon in the entire New Testament next to the uh, Jesus Sermon on the Mount. And Stephen's speech, is, 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 in, in so many words, basically means this. You, Sanhedrin, you Jewish authorities have a, your nerve to charge me that I violated Moses and his law. 
You are the one who rejected and violated Moses and God's, God's truth. And then he pointed out three people. Using the Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, he pointed out it was the Jewish authorities who have been unfaithful and rejecting and disobeying God's law. So beginning with Abraham, Stephen recounts for his audience the long journey of faith which began with God's promise to bring Abraham's people to a promised land where they worship. And then Joseph was mentioned. And Joseph, whom his own brother sold into slavery. If you look at the verse, verse 9. And even as far as Joseph, there was a conflict within family of Abraham. Yet God was with Joseph, and the efforts of his brothers only served for the God's plan. And the next, the story of Moses was recalled in loving details in awe, showing that Stephen cannot be justly accused of blasphemy against Moses. Stephen reminds his audience that Moses, in his day, got little affection from his people who refused to obey him. Here was their savior, their liberator, and they failed to recognize him, asking, Who made you a ruler or judge over us? And that made her actually uh, cause Moses to flee to Midian. And interestingly, even though Moses fled from the wrath of Pharaoh, he couldn't flee from the wrath of his own people. Because verse 35, this is the same Moses they rejected with a word. Who made you ruler and judge? And, uh, and, and then this, and the later Moses told the Israelites that God will raise up for you and prophet like me from uh, your own people. And he was in the assemble, assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our ancestors. He received the living words to pass on to us, that, that means the law. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their heart, turned back to Egypt. So, Stephen was telling Jewish people that you, your ancestors, they've been rejecting you know, Moses. And that they are disobeying God. Even after God saved them, they are ungrateful and they want to go back to you know, Egypt. And that pattern continued. And then he talks about also temple. He talks about temple. When he talks about temple, he actually quotes Solomon's you know, uh, uh, dedication uh, uh, address, which comes from 1 Kings 8.27 and 28. Solomon said, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens. Even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Yet, Lord, please give attention to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy. So, even Solomon recognized this temple is a nothing but puny. God dwells here by his mercy, not because we achieved a great place for God. So this is not a place of pride. It should be a place of humility before God. But you made it idol, you know, place of idolatry. That's what Solomon, I mean, Stephen was saying. And then finally, Stephen calls it, uh, quoting the Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Stephen was uh, rebuking Sanhedrin, all Jewish people, like the old prophet Amos and, and Jeremiah, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your heart and ears are still uncircumcised. He basically called that you are only Jews biologically, spiritually. You are not people of God. You are no better than the Gentiles. That's what he meant by the uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet or your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but are not have obeyed it. So in this polemical summary of Israel's history, Stephen told his you know, Sanhedrin that you did not understand God, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. And you are the one who distorted the temple and disobeyed the law, even rejecting God's promised Messiah and the prophets. 
Now, he had a correct message. And as we see, you know, their response, they were totally convinced they cannot make any more reply. They were just upset. You know, have you had a, you lost argument with somebody, you know, resoundingly, and then you felt shame and then, you know, kind of, you know, mad? That's what the Jewish people, you know, felt. Now, proclamation matters. Now, the question I have for all of us, do you know our message? Can you really explain gospel clearly, personally, in easily to understand terms, rather than speaking so-called Christianese? A lot of Christians speak Christianese that non-Christians have no idea. You know, purpose of our Bible studies, like a cornerstone Bible study especially, is to really make the gospel is as relevant and actually is most relevant than anything else. And so that we can share what we believe in a such an easy to understand way. And also, I think all of us have a, we need to have a certain, you know, messages in our mind and ready to share with our co-workers and friends. And actually, my recommendation is don't preach the gospel. But my recommendation is ask your uh, non-believing friends, non-Christian co-workers and then uh, friends questions. Ask good questions. Leave them a good questions. Questions like what? Questions like, you know, if everything is... So some questions I recommend. Is everything in the universe really just matter and energy? Just ask, do you, are you really believe everything just came out of a matter and energy? Where does love, personal affection, our sense of a fairness, longing for justice come from? Where this kind of, uh, you, know, in, you know, this intellectual, personal, you know, sense of a life come from? And also another question, good question to ask is that Bible says all, every good and the perfect gift comes from, uh, comes from Father above. To whom are you grateful for the good things in your life? I know some non-Christians also, they make a big deal about the suffering as a, you know, a, a sign of God's absence in the, or God's non-existence. You tell them, okay, let's say that there is no God, then what is the suffering? Then it's nothing but a bad luck. Actually, no God, there's no suffering. Without God, you cannot speak about suffering. As long as you speak suffering, actually you are, we are, you know, we are uh, unknowingly posting that God is there and must do something. No God, there's no suffering. Everything is just a coincidence, just bad luck and good luck. But we are not happy with the bad luck and good luck. What about all those people who have done horrible things and nothing happened? Ask people, do you believe you know, justice and judgment at the end of a life? And also, you know, ask that, you know, when somebody talks about book and you said that I'm, I, I love to read a Bible. I hope you do. And then they say, why? You said, Bible is the bestseller in the history. And Bible especially contains hundreds of prophecies, fulfills hundreds of years before they were written. How could it be possible without God? And you, you know, again, you can ask questions like, you know, disciples of Jesus, they were coward, terrified of death, but they all ended up willing to die for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, uh, rise from the dead, what do you think changed their, their mind? Ask them what they believe about resurrection. And, you know, and also tell them this, ask them. Do you know that Jesus is not a good man at all? Because he claimed and demanded so many things that no other religious leaders did. Jesus is not just a religious leader. He asked a lot of things. He demanded that he, you, we should put him above our family. What kind of you know, human being can ask such a thing? Jesus is a, not a good man. Either he is a God or we need to reject him as a crazy man. So ask good questions. You know, asking good questions 
can, can, you know, and the Holy Spirit use this question to work on the mind of your non-Christian friend? Of course, you don't just ask questions loudly out of blue when in the appropriate time, that's when you do it. Now, let me move quickly to the third point. The ending of Stephen's speech, like the most good speeches, is a climax. The point Luke wants to stress. So let's see the conclusion of Stephen's witnessing. Verse 54. When the members of Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is one of the very few times that somebody other than Jesus uttered the word, called Jesus, Son of Man. And then verse 57, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. So at the Stephen's you know, word, this uh, very legal you know, proceeding is, 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 a, is a degenerated into the mob. Is the, the, the you know, total chaotic mob. And they dragged him out of the city, just as they dragged Jesus out of the city, and then began to kill him. And then meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. You know, Stephen's you know, last prayer was that Lord Jesus receive my spirit. By the way, they receive my spirit. That's the evening prayer of a Jew. Jewish people, that's what they pray. Adonai, receive my spirit and receive my spirit just in case. That's how the Jewish people, and then, you know, next day when they get up, they say, thank you, Lord, for giving me new, new breath for day. But the only difference here is that Stephen called Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then last prayer, his prayer was just like Jesus. He said, Lord, do not hold this against them. He interceded for those killers. Now, here is the final step of essential witnessing. That is a costly sacrifice. Stephen, at the end, to the last minute, he bare the witness. He lived and died like Jesus. And then when we sacrifice, people notice and begin to see God. You know, God uses our coherent speech to convince people about the intelligibility of our gospel. But God also used our costly sacrifice, a personal sacrifice, to convict the people about the irresistible grace of God. Stephen not only explained gospel well, but he embodied the love of God in his own death. And uh, how do we know this is really his death was worthwhile? You know, later when Jesus confronted the soul on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. This is a, you know, Jesus asked Paul, in, and Paul confessed, you know, his, Paul, Jesus, well, let's look at the Acts chapter 26, verse 14. When we all fell to the ground, because they all saw the appearance of this bright light from heaven, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the gold. What is a gold? Golds are the farming tool, a long stick with the thorns tied at the end to tame an ox or spur an ox as it pulls a plow. This is not an ancient one. This is more like a modern one. But an ancient one, there is a thorns at the end of the long stick. That's how they tame the uh, uh, animals. And Jesus was pointing out the wounded conscience of a soul. Stephen's death and death of many Christians that he persecuted really disturbed the Paul's conscience, just like a goat was piercing the animal's feet. So Jesus was telling, you know, Saul, that Saul, 
Why you do things that hurt your conscience more? You already kind of feel better about these people. And you know that you are in the losing ground. By the way, there's a great book written by a Korean-American uh, New Testament scholar, Se-Yun Kim, uh, The Origin of Paul's Gospel. There, he connected Paul's theology to Stephen's sermon. And by the way, how do you think Luke wrote uh, this long sermon word for word? It was Paul. Paul was there. Paul remembered the long sermon. And it stuck his mind. And it bothers his heart. That's how Paul, I mean, Paul shared it. And that's how Luke wrote it. Now, gospel came to Saul. Not just, you know, supernaturally through Jesus. But before Jesus supernaturally appeared to Paul, God spoke to Paul's heart and conscience sacrificially through the death of Stephen, the witness of Stephen. I want to conclude my sermon with my own Stephen. Every time, some of you heard my, my testimony before. Those of you, you know, so, yeah. But uh, last week was a Memorial Day. And anytime Memorial Day or Thanksgiving comes, I always try to remember and thank God for those people made an incredible impact on my life. And definitely, there's one that I cannot thank God enough. Because I don't know who is your Stephen that shared the gospel with you. Mine was incredible. So let me just share my testimony briefly. So, I immigrated to South America at the age of 15, first in Venezuela, Argentina, and we were well established within a few years. My parents were hard workers, they are driven. But two years later, we decided to immigrate again to Venezuela. Why? Well, because my parents were very greedy. And Venezuela was a very rich country up until recently. They was the richest country in South America. Right after World War II, they are the fourth wealthiest country in the world. And they, that's why so many people immigrate to Venezuela because they are one of the founding members of OPEC. And they still have the largest oil reserve in the world. All happened down there is a human, a man-made disaster. It's a human disaster, not a natural disaster. But anyway. So we went, we immigrated to Venezuela in 1979, when I was 17. And we were novice business people, so our first venture, totally business venture, you know, we, we lost everything, we got bankrupt, and we ended up moving into shantytown in the hillside, the mountain. You, you know the picture of that? Uh, I should have put that the picture, but anyway. And it was a horrible living condition. There were... 10 people, 10 families living in one small, you know, places. And there was one common bath, uh, bathroom, rest, bathroom that we all shared. And there was a water twice a day. And uh, little mice uh, everywhere. And my mom, who was a Korean War refuge, she said uh, refugee camp during the Korean War was better than that. So you give that picture, right? So I never experienced uh, uh, financial difficulty like that in my life. I was typical middle class or upper, upper poor class, I call it, upper poor class. But anyway, and all of a sudden, we, we have to live day for day. So at the time, we were making clothing, and my brother was selling clothing to the stores, but uh, we couldn't wait for him. Someday he couldn't sell. So finally I said, okay, I'm going to, you sell the stores. I'm going to sell to consumers directly. So I took a two bag full of clothes that my mom made and took a bus and went to the large apartment complex and knocking on the door to door in Spanish called vendedor, salesman, door to door salesman. And I was 17. And, uh, I felt I was the most miserable person in the whole world. Because every time I knock on the door, you know, nine out of ten, they just shut the door in my face. Before I finished my sentence, Senora, ¿quieres comprar ropa directamente de fábrica? Soy representativo de fábrica. Mi precio es el precio mayor. 
just shut the door. And every time they shut the door, I feel like somebody slapping my face. 17 years old. Hey, high school juniors and seniors, how do you feel? You have to, you know, make a living for your own family. And then one day I knock on the door and the lady opened. And I met her before somewhere and she recognized me. And she invited me in the house. And I said, wow, today I'm making a sale. Great. I went in there. And then, you know, after hearing my, you know, my price and everything, and she, she, she told me, she, she actually made a proposal that I, she actually said, I'm a re recently retired school teacher. And I know a lot of my students and their families in this apartment complex. And I sell this clothes for you. So I said, wow, that's better. So I said, what's your commission? I'll give you any commission. Tell me your commission and then, you know, I will split the, you know, profit. And that lady said, no, I don't want any commission. Only thing that I want is every week you come back and drop the clothes and then collect the money from me. And then after that, let's say I have a Bible study for one hour. Bible study for one hour. That's the price that she put. So I said, hey, even if you ask me to memorize the Bible, I will do it right now. So, of course, I said, well, if that's, if that's all, yes, I can. And then we, our Bible study started. And then it was not a Bible study. It was more like an argument. I asked all kinds of stupid questions. Ah, what do you mean by sin? Who, you know, why is it eating a tree from, you know, fruit from the tree of a, a, a knowledge of good and evil is bad? Isn't it, you know, I mean, who made that tree? Why God, you know, God is a strange. We are arguing. We are arguing. Months after months. And then several months later, I came a little bit early and then her uh, house, housekeeper opened the door for me and then I noticed that housekeeper wasn't kind to me. And uh, so I said, okay, whatever. And I asked her, where is uh, Senora Marina? And then she said, and then she told me what happened. So by this time, this Christian lady, actually she's from Colombia, this Christian lady, the wife of a Colombian Christian elder, she exhausted all the her contacts. That she doesn't know anybody. To, she sold the clothes to everybody that she knew. So guess what she did? She began to take my bag in the little cart, and she had a, a little. She had a, like a five years old daughter, and we holding her hand. She's going on next apartment complex, selling my clothes door to door. And at the time, she was uh, pregnant, about, you know, uh, second, you know, trimester, and also they are planning to immigrate to Puerto Rico. You know, when I heard that from the housekeeper, it hit me hard. I said, what kind of a crazy woman is this? That for the, you know, for the religious, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, so I, I take my religion serious, but what, what is a Jesus that she, has she take it this seriously that every day she goes out there several hours to sell clothes for no profit, but just to have a Bible study with a one chinito or chinks boy? It really, really hit me hard. I still remember we had the last Bible study and she asked the same old question at the end of Bible study. You know, do you believe in Jesus? Would you like to receive Jesus? And my last answer to her was, I don't know, but I definitely want to be somebody generous and kind to strangers like you. And then she left the country. A month later, my sister came and they shared the gospel with my mother. And then day after, I also received Jesus. I am who I am today by grace of God through, some, through my Stephen, Senora Marina. Some of you know that I almost named my daughter, my oldest daughter, Maria Marina, but uh, my wife felt too Hispanic that uh, she can handle, you know, uh, she, she, you know, Latino husband is okay, but she can handle the Latina daughter. So 
we compromise, and that's how Mario's name got the instead of Marina is Mario. Now, you know, every day, almost every day, I remember Senora Marina. And uh, anything that I do well, and uh, if you ever, you know, I mean, if you're grateful and happy having me as your pastor, we all owe to Senora Marina, who took care, who noticed of uh, this uh, struggling, des desperate Asian American teenager. And because of our, her heart for the gospel, I am here today. Let me close. We, I want you to raise your hand. I want, I want you to raise your hand. Show me your hand. Raise your hand. On one hand, let me tell you, we have the most precious treasures of all, that is the souls of the people around us. I say it's the most precious because God loves each person like a whole world. God so loved the world. To God, each person is a whole world. So we have the most precious treasures of all in our one hand. On the other hand, we have a most wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which give a power of salvation to anyone who believes. So, if we bring these two hands together with a prayer, you and I can be another Stephen, another Senora Marina, and we will, we will not just save us all, we will really expand the kingdom of God, and we will really reveal God's joy and glory in this world. We are going through a very painful time in life in our country. What can heal us from this racial division and distrust and hatred? Only the gospel of Christ can heal us. Let's pray.